0: This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast.
1: Here is the headline from Religion News Service Two evangelical seminaries sue to block vaccine mandates, citing religious freedom. This is now a national story. We're talking about two of The largest seminaries in the United States, if not the largest seminaries in the United States, Southern Baptist Theological and Asbury Theological Seminaries, are taking on the Biden administration's vaccine mandate. What are the issues of religious freedom and how are the media covering this? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry Mattingly is senior fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. And he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. We have talked a lot about COVID vaccines and religious groups. What makes this story, Southern Baptist Theological and Asbury Theological Seminaries, suing the Biden administration, a
0: major news
1: event, a different kind
0: of story? Well, these represent two of the biggest seminaries in America, if not the biggest seminaries in America. I bet if you looked them up in a chart, which I tried to do a while ago and couldn't find search terms that would find it, these are among the the biggest three to five seminaries in the United States of America. In the case of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, you could probably take most of the mainline Protestant liberal seminaries in America— and take their student bodies and add them all up, and they wouldn't equal Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. So these are very important institutions. But from my perspective, what really matters here is that they represent bodies of people that Methodists, although the, let's say, the conservative side of the Methodist syndrome, the Methodist spectrum right now because of the looming division within United Methodism, but then they also represent the Southern Baptist Convention with its Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission in D.C., which has been so much a part of these discussions. But here's what's really fascinating about this to me. Once again, we have two organizations that represent the center of the COVID vaccine wars. Now, what do I mean when I say the center? Let me remind our listeners. Through all of this, I've talked about—by all of this, I mean the COVID era— I've talked about how the press has presented this mainly as a story with two sides. On one side, you have wonderful churches that went online, and everybody went home, and in many cases, they're still at home, believe it or not. And then on the other side, you have wild, crazy people who want to risk life by having in-person worship services— and everybody breathing on each other while singing hymns, and they're predicting, you know, that these are fake vaccines, and they're yelling Trump-era slogans at reporters and the whole bit. Well, I've argued that the most interesting stories during this period of time can be found in the middle of the spectrum, and I defined the middle as churches that wanted to follow the COVID guidelines. That were coming out from their government agencies. They might test them, they might stretch them, they might challenge some that they thought were unfair, but for the most part you had people who were trying their best to cooperate with the safety regulations and proposals while still returning to some form of limited worship. For me, the symbol of this has always been the Catholic priests in Dallas, I've, I've used this anecdote several times. The Catholic priests in Dallas, who went outside into a large lot where you're you're like 50 yards in the open in all directions, set up a tent with no sides, so just a, a shelter from the sun, and then they put a praydo a prayer kneeler on one side and then the priest sat on the other side, 12 to 15 feet away, wearing a mask, and they were hearing the confessions of people who would come, kneel on the kneeler wearing a mask, in the open air, 50 yards in all directions from anyone, and say their confessions. I thought that was a a very interesting example of trying to defend a core Catholic sacrament while dealing with the government, yet the government found that they were not cooperating enough. Meanwhile, you had people lining up at liquor stores, and you eventually had this come to head with a case that basically asked, why are casinos allowed to open as essential services, but churches can't open for worship service, or in some cases even meet at a drive-in movie theater, with people in cars for worship because they're not essential services. Now, I just gave you some extreme cases. Very few government agencies went that far and created that kind of conflict. In most cases, governments put out regulations, and then churches did everything they could to follow them. Well, what we have here in the case of these two seminaries, these are two seminaries that have advised their faculty and their students to get vaccinated. The leadership of the seminaries have openly accepted vaccination, announced they were vaccinated, and have, frankly, have kind of praised the vaccination process. What they're opposing is the government's ability to enforce a mandate on these seminaries as employers. Forcing the seminary to either fire, lay off, suspend employment, or something to people that the seminary considers essential to their core mission of educating students. And forcing the seminary into the role of enforcing the government policy. They're saying that that's a violation. Of their religious liberty as a religious doctrinally defined institution. So this is really interesting because once again both of these seminaries have openly advocated for the vaccines. Now let me remind you, in case for some of our listeners this sounds familiar, this is the exact stance that Daniel Darling took that got him fired from the National Religious Broadcasters. He was pro-vaccine, he was anti-mandate, and he got fired with gunfire coming from the cultural right. Now we have this case going to court with the government shooting from the cultural left. And my point is, in both cases, people are aiming at folks who are trying to establish a middle. A middle ground on this. By the way, some of our listeners would be interested to know that coming up here in a week, on Thursday night in a week, the date of that escapes me. Would that be the 15th? Does that ring a bell? Looking at my watch and trying to calculate like an old person here for a minute. I'll be a part of an Overby Center program at the Overby Center at Old Miss, at the University of Mississippi, where we'll be discussing why the vaccines have been such an incredibly difficult issue, both for churches, employers, government, lawyers, churches, religious institutions, etc. What made this particular issue so difficult? And one of our guests that night will be Daniel Darling. We'll actually be taking part in the program live there at Ole Miss. There'll be limited seating in the auditorium, but this we hope this will be going out on Zoom or on another online method, using another online method. We'll also, Ryan Berg will also be taking part, along with some others. Anyway, I mentioned that because this is what has fascinated me about this case. What will courts do with people attempting to argue a position in the middle? Okay, does that make any sense? Now, what I'm curious about here is to what degree well,
1: let's talk about the Tennessean first. What did you find there in the Tennessean coverage of this particular story that struck your interest?
0: Well, it struck me as a very safe story there in Nashville. And it also, I was struck that they quoted the ethics and religious liberty people quite a bit, which immediately makes this, you know, a religious liberty story. I thought, if anything, that particular story lacked some voices coming from the political, cultural, and religious left. In other words, it kind of argued, here's what Southern Baptist Seminary and the ERLC are arguing, and it did a great job of presenting that, and that was that. You can't really get into this story without understanding that there's a left side of this as well, and a lot of it includes religious groups and religious organizations, and certainly religious think tanks and legal firms on church state issues. The story that ran in the Washington Post was actually from Religion News Service, the one you cited from Bob Smetana, and that probably went out on the Associated Press as well. That sometimes RNS stories do. That's the, to me, in many ways, the important story because it shows once again how hard it is to use language. In American journalism right now, that establishes a center. We have several examples of that, but it's it's like the battle, once again, over who gets to define what's liberal, who gets to define what's conservative, who gets to define what's centrist. The story at the Tennessean was very kind of lingo and labels-free. So like I said, it was a very safe story, a very direct story, and I liked it, and I hope they continue covering the case and talk to people on the other side of the issue as well. The story that ran at RNS includes one passage that kind of just jumped out at me as I was reading it. It opens with a description of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration rules, when they'll go into effect, you know, how important it is that this go to the courts now, because in January, the seminaries will be standing in violation of the law if they act on this. And here's the one of the sentences or paragraphs that jumped out at me. The schools are represented by attorneys from Alliance Defending Freedom, a major Christian legal nonprofit that often promotes conservative causes. The group has filed similar lawsuits for other Christian employers this week as well. Now, the often promotes conservative causes is interesting. The word often is key because it softens it a little bit. But what I immediately thought to myself is, well, how do we describe the Alliance Defending Freedom when they get involved in cases where they're on the same side of religious issues as the ACLU or other groups? Is Alliance Defending Freedom defending liberal causes at that time? Are they defending conservative causes along with the ACLU? Or, once again, are we struggling to describe what's in the middle? Because in reality, what Alliance Defending Freedom is doing is trying to defend what it sees as the legal guidelines and some of the language from the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, that piece of legislation we've talked about so often that back in the Carter administration was backed by literally everybody in the field of church state studies, from the left to the right. And, of course, I think three people voted against the legislation in the U.S. Senate. And back then, people talked about this unique coalition of liberals and conservatives who all backed the same legislation. What I would have simply said is that that's what religious liberty liberalism looked like at that time. In our current day, that coalition that backed that legislation, that coalition has just caved in. It's exploded. It's fallen apart. It's splintered, pick a word, any word. And now, mainly because of religious liberty issues linked to LGBTQ issues, The world of church-state life has fallen apart, and everybody has to go with liberal or conservative, because Lord knows we shouldn't be trying to explain that there are people in the middle of any of these things. I'm fascinated, as our listeners will remember, I'm fascinated by what happens when this gets to court for the simple reason that under RIFRA and under normal religious liberty kind of case logic for several decades— Courts have said that the government doesn't have any right to get involved. This will be familiar to our listeners, or many of them. They don't have a right to get involved in these cases unless there's profit, fraud, or clear threat to life and health. I'm going to be very interested in seeing what happens when this gets to court and people, judges, lawyers, start asking questions about The government should be able to take extraordinary action in this case because the vaccines represent an attempt to limit negative effects in a clear threat to life and health. At that moment, it will be very interesting to see how the Alliance for Defense of Freedom and other of these, let's call them old liberal law firms because they're defending the old liberalism. First Amendment liberalism of Rifra and of that coalition back from the Clinton years. At which point you can ask yourself, was the Clinton White House conservative when it backed those things, or was it defending what it considered a liberal approach to the First Amendment and the freedom of religion? I've always heard that accurately called as a liberal stance. Yet now when people start defending it, We constantly hear it referred to as a conservative stance. At the very end of that story from RNS, there's another paragraph that punched my buttons that says, Alliance Defending Freedom, which focuses on protecting the religious liberty of Christians. Well, actually, they defend the religious liberty of lots of other people in cases that would be easy to find with a search engine. They've been defending Muslim rights, for example, in American prisons and Jewish rights, Orthodox Jewish rights in prison, etc. But back to the paragraph. Alliance Defending Freedom, which focuses on protecting the religious liberty of Christians, has also represented churches that challenged COVID-19 restrictions on large group meetings during the pandemic. Well, that's half right. Once again, you had challenging the restrictions as in rejecting them and ignoring them And then you had religious groups that attempted to live with the restrictions and accomplish what they could accomplish under them. And those are precisely the kinds of groups that Alliance Defending Freedom had been doing legal cases advocating their rights. So once again, Alliance Defending Freedom, for the most part, has represented churches and groups in the center of this discussion. They haven't been defending The churches that just rejected COVID altogether said, we can do whatever we want, et cetera, et cetera. They've been trying to defend groups like these seminaries that have tried to take some sort of stance in the middle.
1: Terry, should reporters then, following up on this nationwide story of Asbury and uh, Southern Baptist Theological, should they be calling... The presidents of other large seminaries, or as in the case of my church body, we, have, we operate two seminaries, not large, but combined that are slightly respectable-sized student body, or perhaps even the leaders of denominations or the representatives, to say, hey, where do you stand on this? You are an employer. You have more than 100 employees there. Uh-huh. Do you believe, as does Albert Moeller, publicly saying that he does not want his seminary turned into an arm of the govern- government?
0: Now see, there's a really good question. What other seminaries in America, maybe other than a couple of Southern Baptists, how many of them have more than a hundred full-time employees? Stop and think about that for a second. That's a pretty large bunch of full-time people. Most seminaries will have faculties in the neighborhood of like 30 or 40. Then you get into administrative staff. There might be some others that hit 100 But there won't be as many as you think. Most seminaries today are quite small. To me, the question is, what about Christian colleges and universities? And that's one of the places I think they should go. I also think it would be interesting to know how the Council for Christian Colleges and Coalitions are feeling about this. Another group I would check in on would be the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints which needless to say has some large institution and has fabulous lawyers, including, I think, some who work for the Alliance for Defense of Freedom and some similar groups. By all means, reporters need to be checking in at this point with other church state groups. And once again I'm trying to avoid liberal and conservative labels, but let's just say (laughs) let's just say church state groups whose donors are primarily coming from the religious conservative side of the spectrum and church-state groups whose donors are primarily coming from the politically liberal and legal side of the world, Microsoft, for example, or maybe Apple or some others, and and other—Ford Foundation and other groups like that. It's it's sad that we have to talk about church-state issues in terms of left and right— when i know i keep saying this but it's very important we're only about 20 to 25 years away from a time when you could simply say that first amendment liberalism was something that almost all religious groups supported from the assemblies of god to the unitarians and everybody in between used to be on the same side when it came to defending religious liberty, free speech, and a host of things related to that. So, yeah, this is an essential thing that journalists have got to do. And I I think it would be interesting, maybe they they need to pause at this point and write stories about who Alliance Defending Freedom actually is, where their lawyers come from, and maybe a handy news-you-can-use bullet list of some of the other cases alliance defending freedom has been involved in we we've got some very simplistic language being used to describe a very complex part of american life right now
1: it is my contention that groups like alliance defending freedom and there, that's just one there's beckett fund and many others yeah they are have gone from cottage industry to major players on the legal landscape because yeah. the aclu has reoriented its views. I doubt the ACLU would take uh, a case if Southern Baptist Theological Seminary said, hey, we want to sue the Biden administration. They'd say, get lost, jump in a lake. Should someone be calling, a reporter be calling the ACLU and say, what's your take on this particular lawsuit?
0: Yeah, And, and there are other groups in Washington that would speak out quickly on that. You could talk to kind of the representatives of the moderate Baptist world you know, and see how they differ with the leaders, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship folks, and see how they disagree with the current Southern Baptist Convention leadership. By all means, they should should call these groups. But if, for example, with the ACLU right now, the ACLU is struggling to decide what it will defend in terms of free speech cases. And there has been open rebellion in the wider world of the ACLU over how they've kind of tossed out their former rock-ribbed, concrete, absolute defense of free speech. And there have been some stories written about this in the New York Times and elsewhere. So the minute you're dealing with free speech, you're just one short hop away from religious liberty. I mean, long ago, I covered... I mean, we're talking early 80s. I covered a meeting of the World Council of Churches in Vancouver, and there was this open debate on the floor about whether evangelism was something that the World Council of Churches should support. Well, an activist out of South Africa made this simple observation that to the government of South Africa, a guy on a street corner one person's evangelist with another person's political activist and that's just the simple reality of where we are right now we have big cracks in the foundations of first amendment issues right now and who will defend them yeah by all means call up the aclu and at the same time i i'd call up there there are people that are first amendment scholars at conservative schools, and there are First Amendment scholars at liberal schools. Call them up. You know, it'd be interesting to see what folks say at Harvard and Yale Law School right now. I imagine it's rather different than what people would say at Notre Dame and Brigham Young. Well, speaking of Notre Dame, what about the Diocese of
1: Chicago, New York, any of those places where they not only operate a diocese that employs well over 100 people, but the Roman Catholic institutions.
0: Well, in this case, that might be a good thing to pursue next week when the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops will be meeting in Baltimore. I would think that at some point on their docket will be some discussions of what's happening right now with vaccines and what's happening with religious liberty, which is they've got like an entire subgroup working on religious liberty issues right now. So journalists might not have to wait more than a week before they could go after that. You know, like I I was saying about that case with the World Council of Churches, it's so interesting when someone like Desmond Tutu, clearly a liberal in the language that we would use today on social issues, political issues, whatever, Yet, I'll bet you he would still advocate that they were right in South Africa to challenge the speech and religious worship limits of the apartheid government. And in doing that, he was advocating a liberal view of religious freedom. Well, what happens when you do that in America today? You, in cases that involve conservative groups, you get all kinds of labels attached to them, and the old liberalism is gone. What does it tell you, or perhaps as a
1: reporter, what would you make of the angle? How could the story be written? It is these religious organizations taking this ball into court. It's not corporate America. It's mm. not the Fortune 500s. How do you approach well, that without without avoiding those simplistic labels?
0: Well, I mean, for one thing, the religious people have the First Amendment explicitly protecting their right to practice and defend their faith. Once again, like I said, free speech is in the First Amendment, but so is religious liberty explicitly, freedom of religious practice. And what they're going to stand in front of the court, uh, We're well not they, meaning the Alliance for Defense Freedom and other lawyers, What they're going to do when they get to the Supreme Court is say, why make these religious institutions do the government's work? Why make us decide what people have to decide on this issue of conscience? And if you make us make that decision and you make us lay these people off, et cetera, et cetera, no matter what their reasoning, if you make us do that— How in the world do we continue with our work here at the seminary? How do we handle our job?
1: So with about a minute here, have the media done a good job making this simple distinction? Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Asbury Theological Seminary, they're not anti-vax, they're anti-mandate.
0: No, they haven't done a good job at all. And like I said, from day one, for the most part, we have had people with a left and a right with no attempt to find the truly interesting stories that are groups that are attempting to cooperate with the state as far as they can within their conscience. They're not rejecting the vaccines. They're not rejecting regulations. They're trying to do everything they can with their work inside of them. That's the interesting ground and that's the stories that are getting told in a few cases, but they're not getting told very often, for sure.
1: Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overbee Center at the University of Mississippi. He is author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads
0: with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.